Welcome to the first of two special end-of-year episodes of GM Word of the Week. Each month we make a bonus episode of the show for our $10 supporters on Patreon. These episodes usually focus on some unique aspect of one of the previous month's episodes that either didn't fit with the main topic of the show, or were so interesting that we'd have detoured the entire show to tackle them. So instead, we set them aside for use as bonus episode fodder, and called those extra episodes footnotes, as in a footnote to whatever episode first brought them to our attention. Now normally there's always a bit of a to-do around the end of the year and the holiday season that, in the past, meant it was easier for us just to take the last few weeks of the year off rather than try to write, record, and produce a fresh, new, tasty episode. What with travel and family obligations, it was just too tight a schedule to try to put one out. And that's what we were prepared to do this year as well, just lay off the last two weeks of this year and start prepping for next. But then we thought, hang on, we've got some really cool stuff no one has really heard yet outside of our patrons. Why don't we bundle them up for two end-of-the-year specials and release them to the public? And since we couldn't think of a really good reason not to, that's what we did. Each of these holiday specials runs a little short of an hour apiece. Some are informative, some are stories, and some are just letting you know about additional bits of the stories we've covered throughout the year. All of them are entertaining, though, and we hope you enjoy them. Oh, and if they are something you want more of on a regular basis, head over to gmwordoftheweek.com and click the yellow banner at the top to join our Patreon. Happy Holidays! See you next year! Welcome to this month's footnote, a special bonus podcast episode just for our $10 patrons on Patreon. Thank you very much for your generous support. This month, we're looking back to our first episode of December 2019, Rook. The Rook, as you know, is a mythical giant bird said to be capable of carrying off elephants and harassing player characters foolish enough to move openly in lands over which one flies. Rocks fall, everyone dies. And boy, did we have a lot of fun talking about two legendary sailors along the way. One of the things we didn't dig into was that many cultures of the world have similar giant bird mythologies. This, of course, applies to all sorts of different creatures from folklore, and often it turns out that the similarities between two different cultures' versions of a creature are more similar than the differences are different. It's an interesting phenomena, and maybe we'll dig into it at a future date. But for right now, we wanted to highlight one such creature in particular, because first, it's pretty interesting, and second, it snuck in at the edges of a number of our episodes without really ever being directly mentioned. Summon up your recollection of the time we talked about totem poles. Episode 152, Totem, if you want to refer back to it. You might also remember that in that episode we mentioned how there were ten very broad classifications of Native American tribes across North America, and in particular how the Pacific Northwest had native tribes of Salish, Chinook, Shimshian, and Tlingit, among others. These tribes, and others throughout the area, developed a tradition which involved totem poles, and these poles were used for a variety of reasons, including an indication of status and wealth, a recounting of family ancestry, or to blatantly shame someone in cases where such shaming was a last resort to try to get an individual to conform to societal norms. 
Invariably, these totem poles were carved with the likenesses of various animals stacked one atop the other, and represented a variety of things from strength to good fortune to special meanings significant only to the owner of such a pole. They took months to carve and were often found as part of the owner's house or as gateposts through which one might enter a community and be reminded of some of its history. Frequently, there is a bird at the top of the totem pole, usually looking quite large and imposing. Often this bird is referred to as an eagle or perhaps even a seahawk. But most often this bird is actually the representation of a far larger and more important bird, the thunderbird. And that's really where we wanted to go at this point, because the Thunderbird is another one of those creatures from folklore or mythology that shares its general theme and purpose across many, many widely separated communities. Native American tribes across the North American continent had very similar stories about the Thunderbird and what it represented. From the Pacific Northwest, through the Great Basin to the Great Plains, the Great Lakes, and on into the Northeast, the Thunderbird has flapped its great wings and carried with it many traditions. The basics of Thunderbird mythology include the fact that it is a giant bird, much bigger than anything known to exist today. Its wings caused thunder and its eyes spat lightning, and the passage of its flight would stir up great winds that blew for hours. Many traditions gave the Thunderbird the role of protector of the upper world. You see, great horned snakes would come out of the underworld and threaten to destroy the world as we know it. According to the Cherokee, one of them was called Uktina. To quote, those who know say the Uktina is a great snake, as large around as a tree trunk, with horns on its head and a bright blazing crest like a diamond on its forehead, and scales glowing like sparks of fire. It has rings or spots of color along its whole length, and cannot be wounded except by shooting in the seventh spot from the head, because under this spot are its heart and its life. The blazing diamond is called Ulansuti, transparent and he who can win it may become the greatest wonder-worker of the tribe. But it is worth a man's life to attempt it, for whoever is seen by the Uktina is so dazed by the bright light that he runs toward the snake instead of trying to escape. As if this were not enough, the breath of the Uktina is so pestilential that no living creature can survive should they inhale the tiniest bit of the foul air expelled by the Uktina. Even to see the Uktina asleep is death, not to the hunter himself, but to his family. And so the Thunderbird's job was to fight them, and it did it by shooting lightning at them as they emerged from the ground. Another great foe of the Thunderbird was the underwater panther. The underwater panther controlled the waters and was in direct opposition to the Thunderbird, who obviously controlled the winds, and the two were almost constantly at war during certain seasons of the year. Underwater panthers were made up of a mishmash of parts from other creatures. Bodies from the lynx or cougar, horns from buffalo, sometimes feathers covered their bodies, and their tails were always extraordinarily long. They were said to guard copper located at the bottom of lakes and rivers. So you can see how having something throwing lightning at you while you were perched atop your pile of copper in the water might be a bit of an annoyance. To see a thunderbird on a young man's spirit journey was considered a good sign and indicated someone who would grow up to be a great war leader. The Menominee tell of a giant floating island in the western skies on which the Thunderbirds live and control the weather. In some traditions, they can change shape and become human, and in others they punish the immoral or are messengers of the great sun god. And the Ojibwa believed 
that Thunderbirds lived at the four corners of the world and would fight the underwater spirits for an entire season before heading south when the worst of the danger had passed. Now, as you know, scientists like to explain things, and there are two prominent explanations for the Thunderbird legends. The first is that the early Native American tribes had come across the fossilized remain of pterosaurs, flying reptiles found along the coastal regions of what is now the continent of North America that hunted for fish at sea. The other possible explanation is that they had seen condors in flight, specifically the California condor, whose range once included most of North America. With a nearly 10-foot wingspan, it's easy to see how condors might start a legend like the Thunderbird, especially as they tend to soar and glide rather than actively flap their wings in flight. They'd just be sitting way, way up in the sky, slowly circling round and round, watching and waiting. And once you get a really good look at a California condor, you definitely wouldn't want to mess with it if you didn't absolutely have to. So that's our footnote to Roke. Footnote to Unicorn. Last month we discussed all sorts of things, from the not-quite-true-at-all facts of Pliny to the unpersoning of barbarians and the tomfoolery of jesters. We even talked about creatures that don't exist and where things made from parts of their bodies really come from in Unicorn. And it's that last thing we want to talk about in this bonus episode, the unicorn. Or rather, the unicorn that is a unicorn but isn't a unicorn really, and so we left it out of the show about unicorns. Unicorn, unicorn, unicorn. And now that the word unicorn has lost all meaning to you, maybe we should actually explain ourselves a bit and stop goofing around. Back in 2012... North Korea's state news agency, a veritable paragon of trustworthy news reporting, announced that archaeologists found a unicorn lair in the hills of Pyongyang. Now, as you can imagine, this news was celebrated around the world in a variety of ways. First, you had all the folks who were so fervently hoping that unicorns were real, running around and screaming, I told you so. The people of North Korea themselves were said to be rejoicing over the news with much fanfare. And then you had basically the rest of the rational and, indeed, semi-rational world looking askance at things and pointing out how unicorns aren't real, actually. Which, you know, thanks a bunch for pointing that out. Anyway, they were all wrong. All of them, even the unicorn deniers. Why? Well, because the thing they were denying was a unicorn and everybody else was reporting as a unicorn, wasn't a unicorn in the first place, and was never announced as a unicorn. In fact, in a fine example of fake news, oh, that's a loaded term, that, but we're not going to explain how no one really knows what anyone means when they say fake news and so forth, and instead explain that what we mean by fake news is that it wasn't even the news as it was reported in North Korea at the time and was basically made up by the Western press and run with because it filled a few column inches and everyone had a good laugh. In a fine example of fake news, the original story reported in North Korea was actually about reconfirming a site near Pyongyang as a unicorn lair. And even that isn't the whole story. And here we have to dive into a bit of politics and history, and it doesn't have a lot to do with the unicorn, which still wasn't reported as a unicorn. 
There are two flavors of Korea. There's North Korea, which is salty and tastes like the sort of crazy idea you get at 3am that ends up with you and all your buddies in police custody a half hour later trying to explain why you were all staying in the city fountain in your jockey shorts pretending to be lawn sprinklers. And then there is South Korea, which is less salty but still ends up with you and your buddies standing in the city fountain pretending to be lawn sprinklers except you're better dressed and the police are replaced with a crowd applauding your efforts. And between these two Koreas, there is a long-standing argument over which of them is real Korea, and therefore should be in charge in running the country. Each of them has tried, in a variety of ways, some violent, some less so, to prove they're the ones who are really meant to be running the whole show. One of the ways was to have a long-running war, which went for three years and 11 seasons and can still be seen in reruns today. One of the other ways was by showing a series of proofs, both historical and mythological, that were at one time associated with the proper historical capital of Korea. And since Pyongyang is the capital of North Korea, one of the mythological proofs of its right to be the place from which salted and unsalted Korea are run was an old bit of legendary history, which said that the ancient real-life Koguryo Kingdom which used to cover the majority of the Korean peninsula and bits of China and Russia, was founded by a man named Tong Myong. And he was said to ride a unicorn, which had its lair near the capital. But it's still not a unicorn we're talking about. In fact, what the original North Korean state news agency article was really doing was saying, hey, we found that lair again, or at least the ancient markers of the lair. Yep carved stones laid down somewhere between 19 BCE and 1392 CE, and it's right by Pyongyang, and that means Pyongyang is the rightful capital of both Koreas. Oh, also, that makes John Yoon the right and proper leader, so there, take that, ha ha ha. So there's that. But when Western media got hold of the story, it was just too tempting to resist turning it into a big joke and more or less missing the entire point of the news report, which was really to legitimize Kim Jong-un, who at that point had only been head salter of North Korea for a year and was having a hard time convincing folks that he could do more than point at things in photos. So, a couple of missiles thrown into the sea in a unicorn lair later, and things were looking a little more solid for him. But it still wasn't unicorns they meant. See, unless you play D&D, or make a particular study of the mythology of China, Japan, both Koreas, and other countries around that part of Asia, you probably don't know what a keyring is. And for those of us here at the Word of the Week compound, it's not made any easier by the variety of names it goes under throughout the region. There's keyring, keyring, keyling, giring, gilin, and probably a good half dozen more. And honestly, you wonder why we sometimes mispronounce things. If you think the names are bad, wait until you hear it described, which, again, varies depending on where you are. China alone has three separate descriptions just depending on what dynasty you're in. The Kirin of the Jin Dynasty is wreathed in smoke and flame, has a dragon head, scales, and the body of a horse. The Ming Dynasty one reserves the flames for the head, has an ox body, and a dragon head with a pair of horns. And the Qing Dynastic Keeling is antlered like a deer, has skin like fish scales, and the tail of a lion. Thailand's Keeling are all based around different elemental environments and can be both gods and animals. And Korea started out deer-like and became more horse-like over time. But it is probably thanks to Japan that the whole Keeling unicorn confusion exists. 
By all accounts, Keating have at least two horns, except the Japanese version, which confusingly is said to be a dragon shaped like a deer with an ox tail, and also sometimes has only one horn, which curves backwards. So, when the news came out that a Keating lair had been found in North Korea, and that news had to be translated into English, the nearest creature they could find that kind of, sort of, but not really fit the bill was the unicorn. A horse-shaped horse with the body of a horse, the tail of a horse, and a single straight horn coming out its forehead. I'm sure you can see the resemblance. Oh, also, since about the Ming Dynasty in China, the Keating has been a giraffe. Or the giraffe has been a Keering. And Keering is giraffe in Korea. Also, Japanese Keeling is giraffe. And yeah, we know, we're terrible at pronunciation. Don't add us. So that's basically everything we know about why unicorns were suddenly all over the news for a few days back in 2012 and what was really going on in North Korea. They were just being salty. Thank you for your very... Hello all! This is a footnote to our amulet episode from March. You might remember our episode about the amulet, in which we discussed what amulets really were, why they weren't necessarily things worn around your neck, and probably the most famous and important amulet ever found at Ketaf Hinnom. What we didn't talk about, though, was an amulet you'll have come across in a variety of role-playing games, comics, horror stories, and almost all other forms of media. Because it's such a grisly amulet that it just jumps out at you and presents an unshakably creepy, cool image that really sets the tone for whatever story you're trying to tell about it. It's the Hand of Glory. Stories about the Hand of Glory are many and varied, but the general gist is that you use a Hand of Glory to steal people blind, or at least to rob them in such a way that they can do nothing about it. Allow us to illustrate with a story from the archives of D. L. Ashleman of the University of Pittsburgh. Two magicians, having come to lodge in a public house with a view to robbing it, asked permission to pass the night by the fire and obtained it. When the house was quiet, the servant girl, suspecting mischief, crept downstairs and looked through the keyhole. She saw the men open a sack and take out a dry, withered hand they anointed the fingers with some unguent and lighted them. Each finger flamed, but the thumb they could not light. It was because one of the household was not asleep. The girl hastened to her master, but found it impossible to arouse him. She tried every other sleeper, but could not break the charmed sleep. At last, stealing down to the kitchen, while the thieves were busy over her master's strongbox, she secured the hand, blew out the flames, and at once the whole household was aroused. Some stories say that the hand of glory, once alight, puts or keeps everyone asleep. Others claim it isn't sleep, but a paralysis that prevents anyone not protected from moving about, helpless to prevent the robbery. Still others say that a lit hand of glory prevents the holder from being seen, free to go about the house taking valuables at their leisure. All pretty amazing stuff, and if you're the sort of person inclined to do so, handy for your basic RPG rogue. Forgive the pun. So how would a would-be master thief go about acquiring a hand of glory? Welcome to the gruesome world of corpse craft. 
The first thing you needed was someone, preferably a thief themselves, condemned to die for their crimes. According to reliable sources of the 1800s, hanging was the preferred method of execution, possibly because the corpse would be left on display for some time. Creeping up on the fresh corpse in the dead of the night, you'd cut off the body's left hand and secure a quantity of the corpse's fat for later use. As gruesome a business as you were likely to find. Now, you may be wondering why it was the left hand in particular. That's all down to your basic Latin. See, in Latin, the word for left-handed was sinister. Not that the word sounded sinister, but that sinister was the word used. Mostly, you'll find sinister used in relation to heraldry and occasionally playing cards these days. The word for the right side was dexter, and in fact, dexter is still widely in use to this day, though it is slightly hiding from you. Dexter forms the root of dexterous, dexterity, ambidextrous, and for those who are particularly clumsy, the perfectly cromulent word maladextrous. Not to mention the chemical compounds dextrin and dextrose, so named because when viewing light through these compounds, the light tends to polarize and turn to the right in an example of dextrorotary behavior. Since to not be using your dextrous hand was to not be on the right side, sinister, and therefore left-handed, came to be associated with wrong and bad, taking on the connotations it has to this day in our language, that of evil and misfortune, which is unfortunate. We suspect the world would be a better place if it had been more left-hand oriented. Like us. You can only imagine our suffering. But we digress. You needed the fat because you were going to make a candle. Together, the candle and the hand, both from the corpse of a condemned thief along with some other procedures and a bit of chanting and some waiting till the right time of year and so forth, eventually produced a mummified hand that you would take along to whatever house you were going to rob. Once there, you lit, depending on the exact version of the story you were working with, either the fingers of the hand after dripping some wax over them, or the candle itself after placing it in the hand. Either way, you were virtually guaranteed to have an uninterrupted time in which to redistribute the wealth, as it were. Unless, of course, you ran into a particularly perspicacious servant who was somehow wise to your tricks and on guard against you. Which seemed to happen a lot in these sorts of stories. Possibly because these weren't the sorts of tales those who could afford to have servants usually told, but instead were told by the servants themselves among themselves. In any case, it's all a bit of good folklore and seems to be widespread in Europe in the 18th and 19th century. Except, originally, it wasn't about a hand at all. That's just the name made up for a thing that came originally from the French and was hard for most people to say, as we will now demonstrate to your no doubt great amusement. The original French was Main de Glore, which itself was a corruption of the word Mandragora, and suddenly, you're getting those Harry Potter vibes you've been warned about. And yes, it meant mandrake. The mandrake root was supposed to shine like a lamp at night, according to a 4th century text that was written by a person called Pseudo Apuleius, who wanted people to think he was a famous Roman poet and philosopher of the 2nd century for reasons known only to himself. From his herbarium came all this nonsense about glowing mandrakes and French pronunciation and the hands of glory cut from the bodies of dead thieves and satellite and wax made from their own fat and used in practically every appearance in any media with a supernatural tone from comics to video games to TV shows. Ridiculous. 
But if you go to the Whitby Museum in North Yorkshire, you can see a hand of glory discovered in the early 20th century. It was hidden in the wall of a thatched cottage that was being prepared for masonry work. Curiously, though, it's a right hand. Hello and welcome to the bonus episode for $10 supporters for the month of September. We hope you're doing well. Last month, we talked about so many things that we very nearly lost track of what was what. Eventually, we remembered that we'd been consorting with royals in our episode on kings and gone surfing in our episode on peasants. Heck, we even rode off into the sunset of the month with an episode on white horses. However, it is our Outlaws episode we want to bring your attention to in this particular bonus episode. And really, this is a bonus to two separate episodes done years apart. Because no matter what we do, we just can't seem to finish up with Robin Hood. Even though by now, to our standards, he's kind of been done to death. To be fair though, he is a very interesting character, and not least for the fact that his story is so fractured and scattered over all sorts of times and places that it is almost impossible to put it back together in any way that makes any sense and is at all a reasonable explanation for the origin of the character. Because by this point, Robin Hood is less of an actual real person who once existed in history and more of a character of literature and fiction available to be bent and molded by whomever chooses to employ him in telling their own story. Whatever it may be. No single element proves this assertion more than the origin of Maid Marian, Robin Hood's devotedly loyal love interest. Wherever Robin is, there too is she, and whatever Robin is doing, he's usually doing it for, or because of, Marian. At least, that's the way it seems. Until, that is, you start digging into the probable history of Maid Marian to see where she comes from and just what her deal is anyway. But keep in mind, we said probable, because like everything else associated with Robin Hood, Marion's history is often just a patchwork of educated guesses and self-confirming research. So be warned, what you are about to hear is probably contradicted by someone else with their own pet theory. We'll try to stick to as many quote-unquote facts as we can, though. The first fact we have to trot out is that Maid Marion never appeared in the earliest Robin Hood stories. Not at all. In fact, it probably wasn't until the stories had been out and about for a few hundred years on their own already that she was added in as a love interest. Because let's face it, for the most part, Robin and his merry men were pretty much just that, an all-male affair. It isn't until the 16th century that she puts in her first appearance, and even then, she definitely wasn't like the character we now know. During the Roman Republic, a festival was held in honor of the goddess of flowers, Flora, called Florela. It started in late April and ran until the first week of May, at which point it butted up against the triannual festival of Myuma, held in honor of Dionysus and Aphrodite. Florela opened with what were described as theatrical presentations, and in years when it ran with Meuma, it often devolved into nights of debauchery by the end. Over the centuries, many similar festivals cropped up across Europe, particularly in Germany with Walpurgis Night, 
commemorating the canonization of St. Valperga in 870 CE, and in the Gaelic tradition, with a day called Beltane, or Lucky Fire, to celebrate the start of summer and bless the cattle by making them jump over a fire to protect their milk from fairies. See our episode on milk. Eventually, these and many other traditions across Europe were more or less overtaken by the Catholic feasts and celebrations of May in honor of the Virgin Mary and became consolidated into what is now called May Day. Part of the celebrations of May Day involved dancing around a highly symbolic maypole, putting on various little plays and entertainments, and crowning the May Queen. And it is here we find our first connection to Maid Marian. See, the French May Day celebrations often had a little play put on based on a work by Adam de la Hale's 1238 CE manuscript for a story called, in English, something like Robin and Marion's Game. The story was basically presented in a musical style called the Pastorule and conformed to the standards of the form. In Robin and Marion's Game, a knight named Robin happens upon a shepherdess named Marion out at pasture with her sheep. They have a battle of wits, which Marion wins, and then the knight sort of... Basically, uh, he attempts to take advantage of Marion, let's say. But she manages to rebuff him by one means or another. Then, they have a fun time laughing about the encounter with their various friends afterwards. And Robin, being a sort of poetic knight, well, there's some singing and recitation of verse instead of just regular talking. All very romantic and highly amusing, supposedly. Anyway, the important point here is that this was a popular story, but neither of the characters are meant to be the famous Robin Hood and Maid Marian. But the play is so popular that it begins traveling from one May Day celebration to the next, and somewhere along the line, probably when it gets to England, it becomes associated with Robin Hood's stories, and by the 16th century, they're more or less indistinguishable from each other. Along about the same time, Robin becomes the outlaw nobleman we're familiar with, and Marion develops a backstory that makes her a noble-born person as well. Along about 1598, suddenly, Robin and Marion turn out to be married to each other, thanks to another story by Anthony Munday called The Downfall of Robert, Earl of Huntingdon. Both of them change their names to go on the run, and we learn the surprising fact that Marion used to be Matilda. Who knew? And you know what else is surprising? It turns out that Monday may have done his homework on this one. A 19th century antiquarian named Joseph Hunter was able to find references to the characters and story details in an old archive, making the downfall one of the potentially most accurate portrayals of Robin and Marion in existence. It's basically an amalgamation of these facts and details, along with poetic license and just plain making things up, that gets us to the Maid Marian we have today. Every time she crops up, she's changed just a bit to reflect the values of the current times, as is every incarnation of Robin Hood. It's all true enough, given that no one seems to know what the actual truth of Robin Hood is. During our episode on the monk, we talked about the Shaolin monks and their historicity. In doing so, 
We mentioned the 1972 television series Kung Fu, starring David Carradine as Kwai Cheng Kane, a wandering Shaolin monk who went from town to town across the American Old West, solving everyone's problems but his own. The point we made at the time was that Kung Fu, the TV series, was what basically kicked off and reinforced the 70s fascination with martial arts in America that opened the doors for films from China, Hong Kong, and even Japan to make their way to the silver screens in theaters across the country. While these films were very popular stateside, so much so that the wave of popularity lasted well into the early 90s, they were not the first time that martial arts had appeared on the big screen in the States. In fact, the first films which featured martial arts to be screened in the U.S. weren't even from overseas. They were straight from Hollywood. And we don't mean just the occasional karate chop delivered by a super suave Scotsman or squinty-eyed unnamed cowboy. We're talking about fully choreographed fight scenes in which at least one person is unquestionably using what are traditionally considered Eastern-style martial arts. Now, you might think that such films were made near the start of the 70s martial arts boom, the late 60s, perhaps. You would be mistaken. In fact, to find the first film made in Hollywood and released in the U.S. that features martial arts, you have to go all the way back to April and June of 1945. And you will get no prizes at all for remembering what else was going on in 1945. Just three months later, the Japanese will surrender and end World War II. The film in question, Blood on the Sun, stars James Cagney as a newspaper man working in Japan in 1929 at the Tokyo Chronicle. The Chronicle has just announced to the world that certain papers, called the Tanaka Memorial, exist and that they detail the Japanese plans to take over the world. Naturally, the Japanese are upset that their secret is out, and the Japanese secret police set about trying to find the source of the leak and reclaim the papers. The rest of the film concerns Cagney's character, Nick Condon, trying to avoid being arrested, killed, and betrayed, while also trying to secure the papers himself and get out of Japan to alert the West to Japan's plans. Pretty standard stuff for the time, and just the sort of film one would expect to be produced by a country sneaking a little propaganda into its popular entertainment. After all, it's not as if any Japanese actors were cast in any of the leading roles. In a film set in Japan... Incidentally, if you want to look up something interesting on your own, hit the source of all knowledge and look up Tanaka Memorial. Anyway, the film culminates at the docks as Cagney's Condon prepares to escape aboard ship with the papers, at which point he is confronted by Captain Oshima of the Japanese secret police, played by Australian Irishman John Halloran. Made up in just as cringeworthy a manner as you imagine, with accent to match. Condon finagles Ashima into fighting mano a mano instead of just shooting him, and what ensues is a brutal fight against the towering Oshima. Cagney was all of five foot six, and Halloran easily has a hundred pounds and ten inches on him. It looks all but certain that Oshima is going to win, and they set to as if they are actually trying to kill each other. But here's the secret, and the reason Blood on the Sun gets the nod. It turns out that newspaperman Condon knows judo and he swiftly begins employing it against Oshima, who also knows judo. And the reason Condon and Oshima can go at it like two people who have no concern for their own survival? Because Cagney himself knew judo. In fact, Cagney had been taught judo 
by the man who was fighting opposite him, John Halloran. Except John Halloran wasn't really John Halloran. He was judo expert and former Los Angeles policeman Jack Sergal. The two men knew exactly what they were doing and had absolute confidence in both themselves and each other. If you're interested, you can watch the film directly on Wikipedia as it is now in the public domain. It's worth it just to see the fight. One other film is worth a mention as being an early Hollywood production featuring martial arts, and its martial arts using star is just as perplexing as seeing James Cagney fling a man twice his size around a dock house. For this one, we have to go to 1955. Bad Day at Black Rock, directed by John Sturgis, tells the story of John J. McReady, played by Spencer Tracy. McReady arrives by train in the whistle-stop town of Black Rock, a town with no redeeming features whatsoever in the American Southwest. It's 1945, the war has just ended, and he is the first person to stop there in four years. McCready immediately finds the locals suspicious and mistrustful, but not for any reason he can discern. The entire town seems to be set against his presence and attempts to make him leave as quickly as possible. McCready, a World War II vet who served in Italy and lost the use of his left arm, is initially very passive and clearly wants no trouble. But the locals refuse to relent with a particular trio, played by Ernest Borgnine, Lee Marvin, and Robert Ryan, at the center of it all. It eventually transpires that McCready is in town to attempt to deliver a posthumous medal to the father of the man who saved McCready's life and died in the effort, Joe Kamoko, a Japanese-American serving in the U.S. Army. Kamoko Sr. is nowhere to be found, but the burned-out remains of his cabin put a lie to the story McCready has been told about what happened to him. During the course of the film, the ending of which we will not spoil, Spencer's McCready sits down in the town cafe to have a meal, but is interrupted by one of the town toughs, played by Borgnine. McCready is initially calm in the face of Borgnine's attempts to provoke a fight, but when Borgnine's character, Coley Trimble, reaches out to prevent him from leaving, Spencer delivers a karate chop to Trimble's neck that fells him and leaves him coughing on the floor. Trimble recovers and attempts to rush McCready, only to be met with more karate expertly applied by the still calm and serene man. Throughout the next two minutes of film, Tracy dispatches every increasingly frantic attempt Borgnine makes to attack him until Trimble finally collapses on the floor after a precisely executed karate throw. That's right, Spencer Tracy as a one-armed master of karate. Both Blood on the Sun and Bad Day at Blackrock are well worth watching. This is your footnote for May 2020, and it's a follow-up to last month's episode about mirrors. No doubt you remember our discussion of reflection and the properties of good mirrors, what sorts of mirrors were used throughout history, and the various types of magical mirrors found throughout literature. It was a fun episode to write, and we hope it was fun for you to listen to. What we want to talk about in this bonus episode, though, is the story we opened the whole mirror episode with, or rather, the character we opened the story with, Snow White. For those of you who don't know, the Brothers Grimm were a pair of would-be lawyers turned folklorists. Born in Hanau, Germany, as we mentioned, Jacob and Wilhelm attended the University of Marburg, where they began studying law before being turned on to German medieval literature. At the turn of the 19th century, 
Germany was a fractured state of over 200 principalities, all more or less acting independently of one another. The Brothers Grimm saw folklore studies in the collection of the oral traditions of the German people as a way to begin unifying the country by showing how all the various principalities shared a common heritage through their tales. They began by collecting and documenting all the oral tales they could find, and as they did so, certain patterns emerged, much as they hoped. Though some tales, like Little Red Riding Hood, might differ in specific details, the general course of the story across various locations was largely the same and easily recognizable. From peasantry to aristocracy, the tales were very similar, and they collected some 53 of them initially, which they sent to a friend for publication in his book, which their so-called friend promptly forgot about and left sitting in a church where they remained undiscovered until 1920. Meanwhile, the brothers kept collecting stories and editing their own manuscript until they were ready to publish. By now, the manuscript included not only the various stories they'd heard from the general population, but also rewritten tales found in old manuscripts from other sources in and around Germany and other parts of Europe. They would eventually publish the book Children's and Household Tales in 1812, and then revise it across seven large editions and ten small editions until 1857. The large editions contained the full suite of tales, annotated and analyzed, while the small editions contained a selection of 50 of the tales presented only as stories. Among the tales, as we've discussed, is the story of Snow White and the Seven Dwarves, but also included is the much less well-known story of Snow White and Rose Red. The story goes something like this. Snow White and Rose Red are a pair of happy-go-lucky sisters who live in the hoppity-skippity forest with their widowed mother. They all love each other very much, and so it's okay that they're stuck out in the wilderness by themselves with no visible means of support. Between the two girls, they take it in turns to maintain house and home on a six-month rotation throughout the year. Snow White is the shy, quiet, bookwormy, retiring type, while Rose Red is the outgoing, gregarious, cheerful, outdoors sort of girl in charge of most of the actual hoppityng and skippityng. Naturally, Snow White's hair is white, and Rose Red's hair is black, because that's how contrasting personalities and naming works. In any case, all was hoppity and skippity and just fine, thank you very much, we're certainly capable of taking care of ourselves even though we're both apparently about eight years old. One particularly harsh winter, the girls had just laid on the fire and settled in for the evening, while Mom tended to some non-stereotypical knitting and mending when a knocking was heard without. Without what? the girls asked in unison, to which Mother replied, Without the door, I suppose. At which point the girls were satisfied with the answer, because that particular old chestnut hadn't been invented yet, got up off the fire, and went to answer the door. As soon as the door was opened, a bear stuck its head inside. This caused no small upset among the girls, even though they'd both gotten along just fine with the creatures of the forest for several years, and the ASPCA had never had cause to investigate, in much the same way that child services had never thought to investigate a mother who lets her daughter sleep out in the woods alone at night as a matter of habit. With a scream, both girls head for cover, though not, it should be pointed out, under their mother's skirts. Fortunately, the bear is just as surprised as they are, which is exactly as you've been told it works over the years, and calls out to them, Don't be afraid of me, the big black bear. I'm just here to warm up because, frankly, even though I should probably be hibernating through it like every other bear in the forest, it's damned cold out. 
Let me warm up by the fire. I probably won't hurt you in spite of the actual normal behavior of bears, which I am clearly not exhibiting. The mother, suspecting something is afoot but still evidencing the same kind of care for her children that allowed them to freely wander the forest unsupervised, even in spite of that one time they fell asleep right next to a cliff, invites the bear in to warm itself up by the fire. Seeing that Mother has clearly been hitting the cider, the two girls come out of hiding and begin to interact with the bear in a way that suggests they'd either never really seen a bear in action before, or that they were just as liquored up as Mom was. Fortunately, the bear was true to its word, didn't call any authorities, didn't maul them to death in their sleep, and basically spent the rest of the cold winter nights curled up in front of the fire, becoming fast friends. When spring comes, the bear gets up and leaves, claiming he has to run off to protect his treasure, which he has never mentioned before, from a dwarf, which he has also never mentioned before. As excuses to move out and avoid paying the back rent go, this one takes the cake. But the girls, possibly suffering from the effects of too much cider over the long winter, bid him farewell and don't even mention all the food he's eaten, the masses of bear fur plugging up the shower, or the fact that they didn't call the circus to show off their talking bear and make their fortune. After a while, Mother realizes that in the excitement of having a warm bear around, they've used up most of the firewood, so she sends the girls off on their own again to collect more, armed with nothing but a pair of scissors. While hopping and skipping through the hoppity-skippity woods, the girls spy a fallen log and, perhaps intending to whittle it to death with their scissors, they approach, only to discover the third or fourth dumbest resident of this particular forest, a dwarf. Somehow, he's managed to get the end of his beard caught in a split in the log and can't quite seem to get it out. Undoubtedly, the whole thing would have been easier if he weren't hopping up and down and cussing a blue streak. The girls are so stunned to hear the sorts of words you can only look up on Urban Dictionary that they begin laughing at the funny little man and pointing their phones at him, which certainly didn't improve his mood any. Rightly demanding that the girls stop mocking and ridiculing him and maybe instead help rather than try to Instagram him, he eventually gets them to give him a hand. Unfortunately, he failed to realize the girls were entirely useless, and when they are unable to remove his beard from the log, they instead cut off the tip of it with their scissors. For which, as you can imagine, he does not thank them. Unaware of the cultural harm they've done to the dwarf, they go off hoppity-skippity into the forest, while the dwarf runs off with a bag of gems he just happened to have set down earlier. After all, it wasn't like he was going to reward them for destroying one of his social identifiers. Having encountered their first ever dwarf, the girls forget all about needing to bring home wood and instead meander their way down to the river. Sure enough, who should be nearby but the dwarf? This time his beard is tangled up in his fishing line. Once again, he has entirely the wrong approach to getting himself out of it, and once again, the girls quickly give up trying to free him and perform further indignities by snipping off more of his beard. Again, no thanks is given, because would you if someone came along and disrespected your culture while supposedly helping you? No, you would not. Off runs the dwarf, no doubt seeking to distance himself from his tormentors with a suspiciously convenient bag of gold in tow, and off go the girls hop, skip, etc. As is traditional with these sorts of tales, the girls meet the dwarf a third time. This time, in addition to having lost much of his beard to the girl's previous malicious behavior, the dwarf is being attacked by an eagle who, the girls claim, is trying to take the dwarf to its nest, presumably to feed its children. Though a later interview with the eagle revealed that it was just trying to get at the sack of shiny baubles the dwarf had because, hey, sparkly! The girls grab the dwarf to prevent him being carried away. 
but also take the time to humiliate him further by stealing one of his dwarven boots and tearing up his clothing, before the eagle decides the scene is getting way too weird for it now and dropping the dwarf. Again, the dwarf is none too pleased, but in fear for his life, property, and decency, runs off into the woods again, trying to put as much distance between he and they as he can. Finally coming to a secluded spot well away from the usual forest paths and prying eyes, the dwarf sits down to take account of his injuries and losses. He gets as far as counting a stash of jewels when guess who comes over the top of a nearby hill and spots him. Properly outraged and afraid that the reaper has finally come for him in the form of these two little girls, he shouts out, What the hell are you doing here? Why will you not leave me in peace? Rather than getting an answer, a roar echoes from the nearby forest and a bear appears, charging straight at the dwarf. And instead of attempting to assist the dwarf and save him, Snow White and Rose Red, innocent hoppity-skippity children that they are, stand by and watch as the bear mauls the dwarf to death. In his final breaths, the dwarf calls out to the bear, begging for his life, and when the girls do nothing but watch and try out different insta-filters, calls for the bear to at least eat them too, all to no avail. With the dwarf dead, the bear turns to the girls and calls out to them, because of course it's the bear from before. How could anyone be surprised by that? The girls come over and the bear transforms, revealing himself to be the king's son, cursed by the dwarf, possibly for encroaching on protected dwarf heritage lands, to be a bear for as long as the dwarf should live. Which, once again, the dwarf probably should have thought about beforehand and turned him into a gerbil instead. Anyway, the prince has a brother, fortunately, so that when he marries Snow White, which they almost immediately do in spite of the age gap, Rose Red gets a husband too. And then everyone except the dwarf lives happily ever after. The end. We have no idea what moral lesson you were supposed to get out of that, but we sure hope it wasn't wander around the forest harassing dwarves and talking to bears. That doesn't seem particularly likely to work out well for anyone involved. Anyway, the point we wanted to make was that Snow White with all the seven dwarves is not the same Snow White as the one with a cultural insensitivity and a sister named Rose Red. They come from totally different, separate oral and written traditions. That's it. That's all. See you next time. The end.